Hello and welcome to Tech Point Zero, the show about technology, people and politics with Chris and Ben. You're listening to episode 7, released in February 2021. My name is Ben, and as ever, I'm joined by Chris. In this episode, we'll be covering the recent changes to WhatsApp's privacy policy and the current and future state of computer hardware. Let's get to it. So before that, we'd just uh, like to say welcome back. We're here again. Uh, we had a bit of a break as both Ben and I uh, got very busy in our personal lives and we yeah couldn't dedicate the time to make this anymore. Hopefully we're now back to doing this every couple of months is the plan. Take your trust. Sort of towards the end of the month, hopefully. Uh, yeah. Um, we've been both been working from home since the pandemic hit late march for me was it late march or did you have a couple of weeks where you were we we had so my company's headquarters are in amsterdam and i think amsterdam went into lockdown slightly before us right and um so the basically head office was like everybody in all of our offices work from home uh, wherever you are in the world right and that was it was only about four days four or five days before we went into lockdown yeah um but it, it was, I think, um, yeah, we were a few days ahead of the country. So that's probably quite similar to my experience then, because I had, <laughs> I had a cold just as lockdown <laughs> hit, and it, like it was one of those teams, times where it, I don't know there was a, there was a week where everyone was kind of nervous, and you sniffed once, and they were like home, <laughs> home now, get out. Um, so I was just like, fine, I'll, I'll go and work from home, and then before I was completely free because i was like if this if we're going to be careful it makes sense the lockdown had started and we were forced to be in the uh in the office sorry uh, everybody was forced <laughs> to work from home not in the office yeah yeah um I've, I've kind of worked from home before i've gone back into the swing of it but dear god do i want to go outside at the moment i think that's it i think that my overall um opinion of it is I, I, i've been the same i've worked from home before for about eight months in a previous job and and loved it and i, I love working from home mm. again this time uh the big difference when i was doing it before is that you could go outside and do things mm -hmm. you could go and visit family and yeah. uh, to, for me it's not working from home is easy i can do that i can work as effectively i believe at home as i can in the office what is killing it for me is not being able to see friends and family yeah, not not having that social contact outside of work's really difficult. I'm sure plenty of our listeners are in the same situation. And viewers, because we're 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 doing viewers a video feed now. this time as well. Yes, we now have a YouTube channel. We'll uh, have details in the um in the what what is it called on, on podcast, the extra description. In in the show notes. The show notes. It's the doobly do on YouTube. So it's now doobly do. <laughs> I think that was a John Greenism. I don't know where it originally started from. <laughs> You know, um, I always want to call them blurbs because like, that, that sort of. <laughs> of course, you do, Ben. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we'll have uh, links to the YouTube channel in the show notes. Uh, please go and give that a like and subscribe. Thumbs up. <laughs> um. Do we, want we don't know how much of this is getting cut. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, so let's start off with the WhatsApp privacy policy change. Uh, the crux of this is uh, WhatsApp have uh, WhatsApp are going to require you to accept their privacy policy change 
which comes into place on the 8th of February this year. Um, that change is very basically, they're going to start passing data to Facebook. Um, yep. A number of years ago, I think 2016, 2017, Facebook bought WhatsApp um, and, and have owned it ever since. But it, it's been very much operated as a separate entity until fairly recently. I, we've all probably, anyone that, that uses WhatsApp probably realized in the last year or two that when you launch WhatsApp to begin with, it uh, it says um, powered by Facebook or a Facebook app or something like that. Um, this has caused a lot of people to panic or um, uh, sort of consider moving off the platform. Yeah. And um, there are a few other platforms that they can jump to. And uh, I think it would be interesting to perhaps discuss a little bit about uh, the pros and cons of some of those platforms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so from what I guess... Diving into some of the actual sort of privacy details, my understanding is is that the Facebook will know what your telephone number is. Yep. Uh, and it can know what your contacts are, yep. uh, who your contacts are, and I'm I'm guessing what their telephone numbers are. Uh, what it can't do still is read your messages. They can't mm -hmm. see Facebook cannot see um, what you're typing to each other. Yep. Because it's end-to-end -end encryption. Yep. Um, so that bit's not going to change. Now, I don't know about you, Chris. I think my overall feeling about this is that it's not a great move in the right direction. But uh, honestly, Facebook probably have this kind of data on me already. I, I have a Facebook mm -hmm. account. Um, I don't anymore. But in the past, I have used the um, Facebook mobile app. Yep. Because they've taken Messenger out of the uh, mobile facebook interface mm -hmm. i do have facebook messenger on my uh, phone yeah which i can't remember i may have given access to my contacts um yeah and so really all facebook are, are getting from me extra is uh, all of that information but what i do with it on 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 whatsapp i mean there is an awful lot of additional information in that as well like the people you talk to and communicate with does mm -hmm. reveal an awful lot about you, even even just as the metadata without all the extra, uh, yeah, what was actually said in those messages. Mm -hmm. That being said, I <laughs> maybe I assume this was already happening. I don't know. I've I've struggled to find exact details on on how big a change this actually is for most users. I know for, uh, users in the EU, they mm -hmm. won't actually have any practical change. Because while they have to agree to the rules, it's not how their data is handled, I assume, because of the stronger data protection uh, laws in the EU. And it's probably worth mentioning, uh, just jumping in just there, and saying that for the time being, mm -hmm. who knows for how long, the UK is still part of that sort of European yeah. model. The, the My understanding is that Facebook is still treating UK data as EU data, but is likely to change this year. So sometime in 2021, uh, the UK will data will be moved out of the EU data processing and over to the US data processing. I I just so, think the the using a service run by Facebook, I accept this as part of the cost. That's not a good thing. I really wish we lived in a world that wasn't like that, and I wish we had ways of communicating 
uh, that were more independent of a large corporate entity. And I was saying to uh, a few mutual friends earlier today when this very topic was brought up, it's very much a shame that back, uh, I think my oldest WhatsApp chat goes back to 2012. Mm. It's very much a shame that we and many other people didn't jump on a more um, open standards um, chat mechanism uh, about 10 years ago, because... um, even if a particular application or server got taken over by a, a corporate entity, uh, they wouldn't be able to control it because you'd have this this open um, standard that would allow other applications, other servers to, to come up. I think there's a, uh, an interesting point there that's been kind of tickling the back of my mind thinking about this, where, I mean, I think, I think most of them are, uh, what is, it, is it XMPP? Is that the name uh, of the yep. protocol? Uh, so most of them are XMPP, behind the scenes anyway, or at least a modified version of it. They've intentionally stopped people from using the federated features. They've kept them locked down. Mm. And even Signal keeps it locked down. Like Signal's not a federated protocol as far as I'm aware. So it seems very difficult for that kind of that kind of sort of uh, protocols get started within the the environment that we currently have uh, and i'm not aware of any that were around at that time no um, and i think i think one of the uh problems with xmpp at the time was that it wasn't particularly mobile friendly uh, no. and specifically mobile internet friendly it, you required a, a, a pretty constant connection to yep. to use it uh, i understand the project has moved on or the standards moved on yep. and mitigated some of those um uh, problems and i don't know if they they themselves use something like xmpp on the back end but you've got things like um riot messenger yep. that um is a completely open spec and other people can come across and uh, and write applications and as long as they conform to that spec they can you know join yeah. that sort of ecosystem i use riot actually uh daily as an irc bridge because uh, mm. it just had a, a nicer ui and does a decent enough job of of acting as an RC bridge. And yes, I really like it. They've done a great job. The other problem though is people just aren't there. Like if I want to sort to certain groups of people, I have to go to the platform they're on. Mm-hmm. And this is part of the problem with all messaging applications is that they're likely to end up in uh, a single single entity's control or a very small number of entities controls. And and we've seen this before. I, I certainly remember um, everybody when I started really sort of uh, j- jumping into sort of social media as we know it today, mm. everyone was jumping on to MySpace. Yep. And then when Facebook came along, everybody moved from MySpace to Facebook. And that was a really organic move. Everybody yep. just sort of did it. And I don't really remember people clinging on. Uh, everyone no. still had their accounts. They just didn't update their their, uh, their newsfeed or whatever yeah, it was called yeah. back then. Just logging into the other side. The really interesting thing then happened, um, we had, for, for sort of people that were tech savvy at the time, mm. we had uh, Diaspora or Diaspora, however mm. you pronounce it, uh, that sort of came out. Yep. And I noticed, knew a lot of people that were jumping on there and doing both that and Facebook. Yep. And then Google Plus came along. 
um, looked remarkably like Diaspora. <laughs> um, took the whole sort of circles idea and, and, and all of that. Um, and actually, I knew a lot of people that jumped from that to, to Google+. Um, and there were lots of people, myself included, that said, hey, I'm, I'm dropping Facebook. I'm, I'm, I'm all in on Google+. Yeah, I, I was a significant user of the, Google+, for a long time as well. The problem is, is that the core of my friends were not there my family wasn't mm -hmm. there people that and there wasn't actually if i recall at the time the tools on google plus that made facebook so popular yeah the, the thing for me in university um as an early user of facebook was i'm having a party i'm organizing a night out yeah. i can create a facebook event and all of my friends that are already there can jump on it and hey i can actually say to them they can invite more people along as well yep. uh, or not um, and then oh the dates changed the venues changed whatever I can update all those people really easily yeah I, we've got a sort of network effect issue with um, with all of these uh, mm. messaging apps as well as social uh, networks I don't know if it's just the power of the companies that's allowed them to sort of cement control over it or if more could be done like is this i suppose in my mind the two other viable opportunities op the two other viable options are a distributed system so mm -hmm. diaspora or um i mirror my tweets to it. what's the other one at the moment oh uh mastodon mastodon yeah yeah mastodon um is very very close to replicating that Twitter experience. If, if in some ways I would say it's better, but people aren't there, so we're again in that situation. Distributed yes. system could work like that. Um, I also uh, don't know how you do this on a on a planet wide scale, but having some sort of uh, uh, joint ownership, like ownership from everybody, mm -hmm. um, would would be another way of doing that. So yes, you do have a central system, but it's uh, I can't really say nationalized on a global scale. It's just like part <laughs> of how the internet works, you know, kind of kind of setup. I think uh I, I recall um so when when uh WhatsApp started, I seem to recall that being a iPhone user, I paid an original one pound ninety nine for it or something yep. like that. I've got a feeling that uh friends of mine that were Android users got it for free. Yeah, right. But they then had a 99 pence subscription every yep. year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, you get the first I, year for free. You got the first year free and then you had a yep. a pound a year for using a messaging service. Yep. Now, I don't know when that was scrapped. Um when I also Facebook don't bought it out. Right. And I also <laughs> don't fully understand why uh they decided to pick on Android users. <laughs> um but I I'm fully in favor of that. I'm fully in yeah. favor that um if you have a platform that you want to survive, yeah. you should pay for it. There's um, a very um number of podcasts that I listen to. There's uh people on there that will say if you're doing online backup, yeah. never ever ever go for a backup service that say you will have unlimited backup for just 10 pounds a month because that business model doesn't work, or they don't mean yeah, unlimited. Yeah, it's not, it's um, not truly unlimited. Yeah, and so 
if you, you know, what we're effectively saying is have everything for nothing. And that doesn't yeah. work. That That's not sustainable. Yeah, I so I I did pay pay for myself my own subscription, and for the community I run, I would sometimes pay for other people's subscriptions for um, if someone couldn't afford, mm-hmm. which does occasionally happen. And this is is moving into the bigger point. But if someone couldn't afford the uh, the subscription, I quite often buy it for them, uh, mm-hmm. so that they could join in the community. Because if we're paying, if we're using a, a, a this is, this is kind of the, the catch-22. If you're using a chat system that is commercial for some sort of community, then that excludes people who can't pay for it. I agree yes. a pound a year is is very, very low. Um, but there definitely was times where it's like, look, I know it's only a pound a year, but <laughs> I've got all this other stuff going on and I, I don't even know if I'm going to use it that much. Um, Absolutely. And, that's and, a, and I think that's... sorry. That's that's where uh, what you actually need is a, uh, a a system that doesn't implement a subscription, but more. And this is going to sound like a, a horrible idea. Uh, effectively, a tax, a, a tax yeah, that yeah. can be um, adjusted somehow. I, I'm yeah. not going to posit how, but, um, but but would allow those that literally cannot afford to uh, to pay it, but can bring something to the platform to to well, be you know with, wavered from with it. global systems this becomes an even bigger problem because I, I kind of agree with the the concept of we charge everyone what they can afford um mm. but part of the re- part of the reason uh the commercial side of whatsapp was struggling as far as i understand it was that a lot of people outside of uh the western world had to didn't have to pay to access it. Mm. Like maybe it was like they got a year free and then yeah. they got another year free and then they found another code somewhere or whatever, however it worked. Uh, it wasn't monetized. Yeah. And that's because really there are people in the world and they were trying to get a global messaging system. They came pretty close, you know, a billion or so people on it still. Um. But there's a lot of those people that can't definitely cannot afford the one pound a year. Yeah. Uh, and and that's the issue. Like yeah, when you're trying to provide services for uh an entire globe, maybe it's something you can do without uh making money off of it in quite as direct a way. Uh, especially because yeah. um, WhatsApp was a very lean operation. Like they had everything else there. I was so disappointed when they sold to Facebook. Like, and I remember at the time there was a big, uh, a big push by certain people uh, to move on to other platforms. Then, and I, yes. I just feel that uh, it's an interesting time for for wider people to be talking about this because at the time that it was actually bought by Facebook people didn't seem to care. And I don't think that Facebook was that much of a different company no. sort of four or five years ago yeah. when, when it was bought. No, not at all. Um, I I think we all knew it was going to go this way, ultimately. I am amazed the end-to-end encryption has stuck around. Mm-hmm. Did so? I, I, we don't have any evidence that they're taking data from the chats. Maybe they're not. Maybe they don't need that. I think that the fact that they are end-to-end encrypted probably also gives them 
some uh, legal protection. Like they can't they can't be forced to break someone's encryption if they can't. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily stop them in the future, at least collecting data on the client sides and sending that up. So do do the data processing on the ends, like the people who have sent and received messages and send the bulk data up. Like if all you need to extract out of it is a few tags. Uh, These are the topics these people are interested in. These are the topics these people are interested in. Um, Then you can probably get some pretty detailed information without ever seeing the messages, even if you know what they were talking about. Yes. And that probably violates most people's sense of privacy enough. Like, oh, oh, great, you can't see the messages themselves is very much the uh, technical definition of privacy. I, I would I would perhaps counter uh, your, your uh, thought that most people would, would maybe not be happy with that. Uh, given how open people, maybe not anymore are, because emails are sort of dropped out of fashion, but given how open people would have been at a time um, with with email, perhaps not knowing, but but um, basically email had no encryption between mm-hmm. you and me by default. Sure, yeah. uh, maybe it would have uh, encryption between me and my uh, mail provider. Yeah, at, you know, then across the internet and and you know to you. Yeah, but when it was at rest at my uh, mail provider and at your mail provider, they can read that. Yeah, no, you're um, and and people just people still today will go and buy um, things that they don't want people to know that they've bought, <laughs> and be more than happy that they get an email receipt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're you're totally correct. Um, maybe people care less than than we initially think, um, or I don't know. As well, at the same time, I think. I suppose this starts to touch on a wider topic where the world has become so complex and so interlinked that trying to have any sort of expertise in every different area and be able to make mm-hmm. all those valid judgments for yourself is basically impossible at this stage. It probably has for a few hundred years, but definitely and, right now. And like like we said as well, even once you've... Let's, let's suppose that you have made those value judgments... Mm. And you have decided that, you know, this is the one for you because it protects your freedoms, it protects your privacy, it protects yep. all of this the best. Yeah. It's no use if nobody else is there. Yeah. Yeah. You've got you've <laughs> got a, especially in that circumstance. Though I suppose in other ones. But one of the examples I'll give is we were reviewing um our pensions the other day. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw the growth of my pension, I'm not gonna give out details or anything but there's a bunch of different pension uh, schemes i could move the money into or investment pots i could move the money into all of which have performed wildly differently over the last mm-hmm. year and i just don't know like if i was going to move them is that a good idea is it bad how would i know how would i personally feel about the morals of those investment portfolios like i mm-hmm. <laughs> there's thousands I po- yes. I cannot possibly go through and judge all of that and work out where to go and what the correct one is and yeah that's something that I think 
is is a, is a very weird situation. We've created a world where everyone's expected to. Like, they can't. Mm. But everybody is expected to manage their own pension. Uh, or at least a large number of people who have private pensions would be. <clears throat> um, and people are expected to understand the risks they're taking when they sign up for different web services and install different pieces of software. Uh, and I'm sure there's plenty of other scenarios you think about to sign up for a bank. Um Basically, yeah. if you if you have uh, in this day and age, and it, it it's it is wider than this, but but I think we could um, generalize by saying if you need a, a username and password, that that's because that's basically anything mm. these yeah. days. If you need a username and password, how much do you understand what you're signing up for? Yeah, totally. No, you're completely right. Okay. So I just don't, I don't necessarily think there's easy solutions to that mm. in terms of. No, no. of I don't. There's, I don't think you can ever create a situation where the individual could be responsible for all of that detail. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's say we do move away from WhatsApp. Mm. Um, we've got a number of options that we could go for, uh, and and I guess let's be honest, there are probably as many different messaging services as there are. Yeah, I think we went through some of them in our was that our first episode. One of the early uh, ones. Quite possibly. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I think a big one that a lot of people have said, you know, is is the thing to move to is Telegram. Yep. Uh, I'm I'm not so convinced by Telegram. Um, a lot of the initial, I don't know what the encryption's like now, but a lot of the initial uh, encryption work was like hand rolled by themselves, and yes, that is definitely troubling. <laughs> like, it's not the it's approach all... you should be taking. No, it's all uh, as far as I understand it. They, um, it's all closed source. Mm -hmm. uh, they're unwilling to let security researchers look at their code. Wow, to, even to it. Uh, I, I believe so. Um, they have had some cryptography contests mm. uh, to get people to, to to break it, and offered quite large rewards mm. um, for that. But my understanding is they still haven't opened up their their uh, protocol to to allow security researchers to actually yep. get into it and and verify it. Yep. Um I also seem to recall uh something that I've read recently on a sort of a comparison is that that encryption isn't turned on by default. You've got to go and mm -hmm. turn it on. Uh which is 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 fine. Yeah. But it means that the those less savvy users mm. um are not going to turn it on. And should yes. anything be said, uh joking or or whatever yep um they are not protected by yeah. by end-to-end -end encryption if it's not on as default it's basically not there right yes um now telegram has also been home to um some less savory mm -hmm. groups of people uh that's perhaps not fair to say but certainly people that that a lot of other people would not want to be associated we're, with. We're covering all the um, previous episodes. This is stuff we uh, probably covered in the online extremism episode. I, I believe so. Mm. And and so, um, to especially to, to migrate to Telegram, uh, forget to not turn on um, yeah. encryption for one of those chats. You're, you're aiding a organization that is home to... Uh, again, a lot of groups of people that you do not want to be associated yep. with, um, and and that's so that's that's a big reason for me not to uh, 
um, not to even consider them. Um, I know one big draw for, for a lot of people is that with the with WhatsApp, if you want to use their desktop or web yeah. services, your phone has to be connected. Yep. Uh, with Telegram, that's that's not the case. Yeah, it's a separate connection. And that's that's again, it's it's um, convenience over yeah. over privacy and security. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree. I'd rather have WhatsApp than Telegram. Um, yeah. Sure. So another another big one that a lot of more tech savvy people will be um, uh, looking at. And in fact, uh, my my uh, app pinged several times a day, telling me that people had joined <laughs> uh, Signal. Yeah. Um, and Signal's a really interesting one because Signal popped up, I, I want to say a few years after WhatsApp, or, or certainly became um, somewhat popular a few years after WhatsApp. Mm. And uh, it's a ch- it was a chance meeting by the original founder of WhatsApp and an engineer from Signal that actually um, WhatsApp uses, uh, mm. or at least used, I'm presuming it's still the same, yeah. uh, the Signal protocol. So, yeah, for the encryption. The, the the signal protocol and encryption is open source. Uh, yeah. People can go and verify, it, and it has been verified by security researchers. Yeah. Um, and so, actually, signal is a very uh, natural jump for me to to go to because it already shares a lot of the the good things about WhatsApp and yeah. isn't owned by Facebook. Or another large yeah. uh, corporate body that maybe you wouldn't want it, it, getting hold of bits owned, of data. Though. That's the that's the key difference there. We're still talking about a, a company. Yes, and and as far as I understand it, um, there is no federation there, so I cannot go and um, uh, create my own app that conforms to the protocol and yep. uh, and and join in. Yeah, and that's or or a server. You know, I, I can't go and, and create a server and get people to use the Signal app to yep. to, to join my server. Um, so I think it's a step in the right direction. It, it, it's very much, I think, a step sideways um, from WhatsApp. It, it's yeah. no better, uh, but it's no worse from what we've had for the last few years. I mean, it's, I agree it's better in that it's not Facebook, but <laughs> that, that is about it, yeah. So that sort of sums up for me in terms of the big ones that i've heard of chris have you um, heard of any other no, nothing, ones nothing that... large everything else i was going to suggest is is basically the the taking the federated services and either hosting themselves or mm-hmm. finding a host that you trust and, and taking that route that's i think going to be a lot of a a lot more effort than moving yes people onto signal or telegram um, I, I think it's worth worth mentioning just very briefly that uh not that they're necessarily better because there are they they're owned by uh, by companies, uh, but there are the likes of Slack and Discord mm. and um, struggling to think about this. But but for me, uh, although it's all instant messaging, if you will, mm. it's very much a different um, class of it. So both of them as well, yeah. Both of them don't have end-to-end encryption, as far as I understand it. They're both client-server encryption. Yes, and and but my my what I was getting at was that they're both different models. In that, uh, although you can do direct messaging, they are very much um, yeah. set up as a as a sort of a pull model. You set up a room that is public, and you allow people to the, be the, pulled into it. There's a really interesting part of like human psychology where we're we're essentially talking about apps that send messages to each other, <laughs> and humanity has created thousands of them 
And and I, I know I was earlier suggesting that uh, network effects mean that one or two seem to be the victor. I still think mm-hmm. that's the case. But as soon as you change the context of the messaging a little bit, just a, a tiny bit, like it might be on your PC while you're playing games or whatever else, it mm-hmm. only takes a few key features to flip the balance back and all of a sudden yeah. everybody's moving to use a different app. So I'd also like to talk about uh, a state of uh, computer hardware, particularly looking looking forward. I don't know if you've seen much of the hardware market at the moment, Ben. The There are significant supply issues. <laughs> if you want to... I, I imagine there are supply issues throughout the supply chain at the moment with coronavirus. And it is currently very, very difficult to get your hands on a GPU or a CPU. CPUs seem to be a little bit easier. At the same time, some really impressive hardware has been released. Uh, NVIDIA came out with their new 3000 series, and AMD has come out with their 5000 series. And, yeah, it's it's a weird time when it's actually really... It's a really exciting time to be into hardware and wanting something new or buying something new, but it's also kind of you're kind of depressing when you can't get the thing that you know is good. Um, yes, I myself have been very fortunate. I should say, I, I've managed to get the parts that I wanted um, without too much difficulty. But I do know plenty of other people that have been unable to to get hold of what they wanted. And this this got me thinking about kind of where it's going. Um, I think we've both said in the past that in the sort of the decade we were both at uni, mm. computer hardware very quickly got out of date, and you you know it could be just a matter of two or three years from buying a computer until you couldn't use it for everything, like keeping a piece of old hardware around suddenly became not just a chore, but like there was something you were missing out on at the very least. Uh, there was very much a... So uh, two things, just to sound that very quickly. Mm. Uh, you had, shall we say, alternative computing platforms. Uh, I- I'm looking at Apple here. <laughs> um, that uh, their users were, you know, I have bought a Mac. I have spent a lot of money on it. This Mac is going to last me seven years. Yep. And Apple was very good at that because they controlled the whole stack from, yep. you know, they uh, worked with IBM for the PowerPC chips uh, and they did everything from hardware to software. That, you know, it, yeah. they, could, they could do that. Yep. Um, so as well as Apple's sort of alternative platform, if you were keeping old hardware around, yep. it was because you were a hobbyist and you had some... Uh, you wanted to tinker with some weird Linux that that yeah, you could definitely. put on this old bit of hardware and you know really squeeze the last bit of life out of it. Yeah. Uh, but it was a it, it was something that you enjoyed doing and not something you wanted to do. You know, not something that you that the everyday person would want to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, whereas I think my experience certainly for the last ten years has been more that hardware has stuck around for a long time admittedly mm-hmm. it's a macbook but i've got a seven no eight year old macbook um that i still use it's fine for what i use it for i'm not you know using it for super impressive gaming but even then a lot of the software solutions have fixed that so i can now um go and use game streaming services to stream for my gaming pc or, or anything mm-hmm. 
else that I would uh, like to do, really. But- and and very much the same here. I've got a laptop that is from, I think, 2013. Yep. Um, still works just fine, does everything I want it to do. Yep. Um, and really, the things that are slow on it are things like uh, it's got a hard drive still rather than SSD, right, yeah. which is easily fixed yeah, you can by putting that. an SSD in it. Yeah. Um, up until last summer, I was still using an iMac that was built in 2011 and it was doing everything I wanted to just fine. The only reason I replaced it was because I'd stopped getting uh, even, I think, security updates from Apple. Yeah. Certainly, I couldn't uh, bump up major versions of macOS. Yeah. And it was only uh, uh, an amount of time but before it was effectively worthless. Yeah, um, yeah I, I definitely think Kamiyama uh, started lasting a bit longer. Um, some of this, I think, is more directly attributable to Intel being unable to really get the uh, scale down past 14 nanometers. As other chip fabricators have managed to do that, then it does seem as if that we're kind of maybe not back to Moore's law, because I think both both <laughs> you and I agree that that direction is definitely slowing down. You know, it's the, the, the other end of the S-curve at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're definitely getting faster than we were. And I'm wondering if we're going to see, you know, is it possible that for the next 10 years we see a situation where actually computer hardware starts increasing at that pace again or improving at that pace again and we end up where, yeah, you know, a five-year-old computer is is basically end of life. Um, you can't even re- reasonably reuse it for anything. Um, that definitely has negative side effects. I was I was quite happy that computers would last as long as they would. Um mm-hmm. It takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of energy and resources to to make a computer. Exactly, yeah. Um, and being able to use the same one for uh, five, seven, ten years yeah. means that you don't have to manufacture a new case. Yeah, in, in in that an awful lot of people will be using laptops. Yeah, um, and you won't just upgrade bits in in it. Yeah, um, you don't have to manufacture a new case, a new screen, a new GPU, CPU, motherboard. Yep. You know, if it, if it does you for what you're doing every day. Uh, then that's great. And the only thing you perhaps want to consider is, is a new computer on a, on an everyday basis going to give you such better power consumption, yep. power usage, that um, you're doing more damage by ha- having it's, this old thing around. very but unusual that's the case. Very that's, unusual. That's set offset by the fact that a new computer... Yeah, yeah. It's got it to be so much to the planet. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the other thing I think that's that's changed, and we, I suppose we'll, we'll find out uh, how it's going to scale. But multiple cores. Yeah, you know, we got we got stuck for uh, for a quad core for a very long time, and now like you know six, eight, twelve, sixteen cores is becoming more commonplace on desktop, mm-hmm. and I think that's. I, I previously would have said, oh, what, what difference does it make? It's almost, you know, it gets ridiculous when you've got so many cores. But uh, <laughs> some, something that I have thought about that the ordinary user might have an awful, uh, a bigger problem with, actually, is background processing. There's an awful mm-hmm. lot of programs on a modern PC that just sit in the background doing their little task, um, you know, whether it's a game store or antivirus or anything else. And I could imagine that uh, a multi-core, you know, a, a high multi-core computer 
um, for a mod for a normal ordinary user would actually feel quite a bit faster because mm. all those background tasks are just out of the way. And we might go, oh well, we can clean them up, but they're <laughs> they're not really going to do that. No, no, it's an interesting one as well. I, I think uh, about twelve or thirteen years ago, I was working for Sun Microsystems, and they had uh, they had a couple of different systems. One of their systems was a um, a high highly threaded CPU system mm. that really took advantage of um, multi-core processing yeah. uh, or, or, or um, sort of threaded, multi-threaded process, uh, yeah. processing. And also um, just applications like a web server that, that naturally has, you know, each connection is, is a thread. Yeah. Um, so each core in, in itself wasn't particularly powerful. It didn't, didn't push anything through particularly quickly, but it could handle yeah. a lot of work without slowing down. Um, and I kind of came out of my my year at Sun thinking that's how computing was going to go. Yeah. And in fact, around about that time, we had people like Apple coming out with uh, Grand Central Dispatch to make it easier for uh, Mac OS uh, or, or uh, OS X developers at the time yeah. to um, create multi-threaded applications. And that just hasn't really happen still no. it is getting there but a lot of applications are still very much single thread i do think it's it's a fundamentally difficult problem like it's not something that we're mm -hmm. just going to snap you know snap our fingers and solve i think it's much easier to solve for a certain well at least it appears from from what gets produced it's much easier to solve for like a given subset so consoles tend to find it relatively easy to scale across all the cores because they're used to working with that CPU architecture and that number of cores. Um, yes. Which is why I think there'll probably be a bias towards eight cores for quite a while to come, with mm -hmm. certainly with this console generation and, and with PC gaming. I definitely think the direction going forward is to more cores. It's very mm -hmm. interesting that you raised the point about them being lower-powered cores and having more of them uh, yes. and, and, and spreading the workload out across them. That modern CPUs are going to a sort of a hybrid situation where, I mean, they do it in different ways. So the M1 chip that Apple have released has this, uh, that has the high performance cores and the low performance cores, so they can go into a really low power state. But even a modern day uh, AMD uh, or Intel CPU will clock an awful lot higher if only one or two cores are being activated. If you just got a, a single yes. threaded processor, it will overclock that core significantly more than if everything was being used uh, all the cores were being used on a on a um, a more multi-threaded process mm. and so we're kind of in, in this world where there's possibly going to be the best of both kind of situations my, I, I think to throw sort of another angle in as well I think perhaps my worry is for the future um which I think could could bring us into this world where we do have to recycle every sort of mm. three years or or you know insert time frame here yep. is um, Apple's M1 chip. Now, yep. uh, it's phenomenal. It's you know really powerful. People mm. are raving about it. From what I've heard, yeah. yeah. Um, my worry is is that so. Uh, there's, I think uh, Linus Torvalds has said he doesn't expect Linux to get ported to it ever. Um, wow. I don't know that Microsoft have got any interest in porting Windows to it. I don't know if Apple have 
any interest in supporting boot camp on it anymore. <laughs> um, now, so, and th this I think brings two things. One, it, it is very much a break. At some point, your Intel Mac is not going to receive, it's not only not going to receive any updates, yeah. but it's going to require much more additional effort for someone like uh, Mozilla or Google to yeah. keep Chrome and Firefox running on your Intel Mac. Yeah. Um, so they're not they're just going to stop. So even if you've got a perfectly workable machine, you're going to have out-of-date software on it. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of like the one thing that is Apple's, very much an Apple's problem, if you like, mm -hmm. or Apple user's problem. Um, the other thing that I'm slightly worried about is, yes, ARM is brilliant, ARM is great, but one ARM chip is not the next ARM chip. And so um, while I can quite freely switch between an Intel and an AMD, sure, I've got to you know, have a new uh, motherboard and, and mm. bits and bobs like that. I can't just go and put Mac OS or Linux or Windows on brand new ARM chip that yeah. new company came out with because it doesn't work like that. And if we're going towards ARM and away from x86, which I'm, I'm not convinced at, Apple's doing it, and yeah. Apple do have a history of being maybe a few years ahead of interesting ideas, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, if I if I put it that way, or not necessarily good ideas, just, but <laughs> who just copy what Apple does? Whatever exactly. it is, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that perhaps hails back an era close to what we saw in the seventies and eighties, where you had lots of people making bespoke hardware. Um, which was perhaps very, very good, but very, very poor for interoperability yeah. and maybe had um, through uh, sort of consciously or not designed uh, built-in obsolescence. Yeah. I, I That's a, an interesting situation because, of course, I'd forgotten how much uh, ARM CPUs run on so slightly varying different instruction sets, don't they? So you have to mm. compile it for every instruction that's redundant. And, and it, it is, it, and it's not even things like the fact that um, the the way they boot up is is different. Oh, um, wow. okay. you, 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 whereas we've got a on x86, you've got a fairly standard way of um, you put this stuff here on the disk, and you put that mm. stuff there on the disk, and fine, it's all a little bit different now. We're back, now we're on EFI, but my understanding with um, with ARM is each chip has their own like boot code to get you into the OS and your yeah. OS needs to sort of understand that. And, yeah. Okay. Um, so you yeah. could have some significant differences between each platform. Yes. Um, I think, you know, Apple are going to bear that cost for them. For them, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the interesting bits um, is they wrote an extension to the chip or they created a hardware extension to the chip and the instruction set that helps i can't remember what instruction it is now uh, but it helps emulate part of the x86 or mm -hmm. x64 instruction set which means that they can do that emulation much 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 quicker than they would normally be able to uh, yes comparisons are getting up to like 80 percent of the speed which is really getting to a stage where you're like yeah that's that's fine that's yeah there's no yeah. cost from the user's perspective really um and the low-powered cores are giving the iPad-like battery life, so you're looking at 20 hours battery life for a laptop, mm -hmm. which is pretty pretty big. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot, long time. <laughs> and if they can deliver sort of uh, Mac Pro sort of performance in, in the MacBook Pros, then I think they've got a 
and they made the right decision for Apple. Yes. Whether the rest of the industry follows suit, yeah, there's a chance that people will go, well, Apple are doing it, so it must be the right thing. Uh, and we could be in a situation as well where hardware is more integrated. Like, it's more, you just buy it as this thing for most most people. I, I, I do wonder on, on just on this, and, I, and it's slightly away from my, maybe where our topic was, was going. Hmm. I do wonder whether um, Apple may do their thing on, on their ARM chip, yeah. but actually it, it wouldn't surprise me if you get the likes of um, Asus and Dell and um, all the other ones have dropped out of my head. Yeah, but if you if you if you look at sort of general computer hardware laptop makers of, yeah. of today, OEMs, yeah. it it really wouldn't uh, yes it really wouldn't surprise me if they um, sort of group around a particular kind of ARM chip. Yeah, I agree. Um, and actually, because that allows them to share a lot and, and reduce costs. Yeah. Um, and it really wouldn't surprise me then, because they can also have a partnership with Microsoft and it runs yeah. everywhere. Simple for Microsoft, simple for business. Um, that might make sense, but you've still got this, this world now where... Um, Microsoft and everyone that runs that is running on this and uh, Apple is running on something else. Yep. And it, again, that's that's just where we were 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's just happening. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know if there's much to get to about it. <laughs> um, we could end up in a situation where everyone ends up on ARM, um, which would be really interesting to see what happens to amd and intel yeah in that in that scenario yeah definitely um something else i'm really i, I don't know enough about the industry to really have a strong opinion on this but uh intel not being able to scale mm -hmm. their, their fabrication process down uh is really costing them now like it is <laughs> It's been, I don't know how many plus, 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 plus architectures they're on now, but it's been, a, what was it, 2015-ish, I think, mm -hmm. when they when they did came out with the 14 nanometer uh, CPU processors. And I I, I suppose I'm, I'm interested if you think they're going to catch up. Like, they keep managing to pull a rabbit out of the hat <clears> and getting a processor that's better, but ultimately I can't see them doing that without reducing the uh the size of manufacturing i um it's an interesting one i think that if we look at history um we can see a point where um intel had very very poor in comparison to amd single core performance on their single core cpus yep there's a time sort of um 2004 ish when amd were um, winning over mm -hmm. Intel, shall we put it that way? Um, and then Intel came out with the Core Duo, and that that generation of the the, the core architecture. Yeah. That trounced what AMD were doing at the time, and AMD really struggled to to catch up. It took them years. They they yeah, went yeah. through um, varying models of three core processors that were like a, a quad core processor with a failed core um <laughs> which is, is is legitimately how I mean, processors are made yeah they're um, just technically still doing that but just with more cores 
but but everybody does you know intel will make the my understanding is that the chip makers make the best um processors and then go that one's a bit crap yeah we'll market that as a as a lower you know and then they can you know twiddle some knobs and um yeah. tune it down if it's just a little bit too good but not as good as it yeah. ought to be um but amd were basically doing that and and not still not doing that well and then only in the last few years have they really overtaken intel again and, and they're doing so much better yeah so well, it was, wouldn't... it's only been this generation the, the 5000 series where they yes. could decisively say they were better at intel's processors on every metric other yeah. than price for performance like price for so, performance they did decide to be a little bit uh they, they upped the prices like everybody else. yes oh and, and this was it that i i'm sure that when i started building my own computers um it was cheaper for me to get an intel processor because they weren't that good <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and and when i was looking before at buying a new uh building a new computer mm. amd was cheaper because they weren't that good compared yeah now they've better and they you know they've um, immediately rammed the prices up to to match because they know the market will switch as absolutely yeah so it w- really wouldn't surprise me if if intel i you know what i think perhaps three things are going to happen the obvious one that could happen is uh they don't and they get kicked out of the process again um i yeah. don't think that that will happen i think that what could be more um uh likely because that would would uh, of course cause amd to have a monopoly i i think it would be interesting to think that um in the same way that AMD, sorry, that Intel had to license the um, x86 instruction sets to mm. AMD, and then AMD had to license the 64-bit ones back to Intel. Mm. I wonder if it would be an interesting thought whether that um, uh, AMD could pot- potentially license um, some sort of fabrication method to Intel yep. um, in order to get <laughs> Intel competitive again, shall we say. <laughs> Uh, so that's or uh, you know I think so AMD through do, some method AMD don't do any of their own fabbing so I don't think it would quite work like that. No, but but yeah. you know, um, but or or I think that the the other option is is that um, Intel do um, if not pull ahead, come up to match AMD, and I think yeah. that that happens in a variety of ways. Yeah, they get external help in, in the same way that AMD have external fabricators. You know. Yeah intel could could look out uh it really wouldn't surprise me this is the way that that things sort of sometimes happen in silicon valley um if intel brought on someone quite high up from amd <laughs> yeah i mean um you say that an awful lot of the engineers that were at intel have moved to amd yes um and i i think there's basically two ways out of this for for intel one is is just literally as you say they they successfully managed to find a way of designing a smaller node and they make mm-hmm. it on a smaller node if they only do that once though they've got they've got to keep doing that like doing it once mm-hmm. doesn't solve the problem they've got to do it and then do it again and they've already fallen behind um by at least a generation um i know i think intel the way intel measures the nodes means that really 
what they call 14 is kind of closer to what everybody else calls 10 give or take it's a bit approximate. okay even now you're talking about uh what the m1 chips five nanometer so yes we're you know intel's even on that metric There's... at least a generation behind so intel uh redesigned their cpu architecture for the was it the 10 or 11 series that went on to laptops mm-hmm. and that was printed at 10 nanometer and that was good that was fine but they couldn't get the yields up high enough to justify that for desktop class processors so mm-hmm. they're back porting the architecture the 10 nanometer architecture to 14 nanometer and capping right. the cores at eight per chip mm-hmm. and I, this is very this is very unusual like like we've, yeah We've, we were saying earlier we've been used to a situation where technology keeps moving forward and keeps getting better, and that was part of the reason why sort of in the uh, early 2000s uh, a computer would age so quickly. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about companies uh, having to, to literally roll an architecture back to a previous process node. I, I think as well, uh, slightly less um, slightly less on the strictly hardware front mm. um although very very closely into it uh intel have had a problem with the spectra meltdown uh vulnerabilities yeah. that i believe um like their hardware is still like their, their architecture is still vulnerable to they've they've sort of put some mitigations in place but they've not designed it out they've, okay. they've put mitigations in place and so actually what they what they currently have now is a uh, a technology that they're backporting to an older process, working with an architecture uh, that is flawed. Yeah. Um, and what they really need to do is quite quickly get an entire new redesign of the process yeah. and the architecture yeah. together. Yeah, they've they've got a lot of catching up to do at the very least. <laughs> uh, I've, I I don't want to say I feel for Intel, but <laughs> like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can imagine there's a, there's a lot going on there if they're they're really trying to to dig themselves out of it. Um, I think long term, we probably are going to see an increase in price for computer hardware. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe, well, probably beyond an inflationary price. Um, I I hope, I really hope, that the software engineering side of things can can do enough to keep that that hardware lasting longer because i think absolutely people, people are happier and i think it's better for the planet overall if mm-hmm. i can buy a computer every five every 10 years and know that it's going to last and not have to yes. think about oh i might have to replace certain components in three years time um or the whole thing in three years time and mm. i think that makes the cost more bearable but I, given given the changes that seem to be happening in the industry and uh, they're becoming longer and longer term i think we might have a period of pretty expensive computer parts coming up certainly for the next couple of years possibly for the next decade yes talking about hardware obviously we've been talking about commodity mm. hardware and uh, perhaps the apple m1 doesn't quite fall into that but it also leads to an interesting discussion around mobile phone hardware and we saw back in uh, the early iphone days 
Yeah. I'm a terrible Android person. I, I have no idea about them. Um, between like the first and second generation uh, iPhones, we saw massive jumps in capabilities. Mm. And although Apple will tell you that this generation is 30% better at or 30 times better at doing X than, than the previous generation was, um, largely in my um, experience, you jump up a generation at a time and your overall experience isn't drastically yeah, improved. Yeah. There's some edge cases. There might be some games that are better, but... Um, but overall, usability is the same. Um, and what so what's kind of interesting there is um, I wonder if we'll see going into the future um, maybe every other year updates to phone hardware or whether they're really going to sort of juice as much as they can this idea that everyone's got to have the latest and greatest <laughs> and keep on bringing a new phone out every I, single year. I think Apple's already kind of hedged their bets on that. Like I, I, they've still got that brand where mm -hmm. you know the new stuff has to come out but they at the same time have diversified their hardware they've got a lot more different types of iphone so the, yep. the idea is that you can buy one for you you know that's mm -hmm. appropriate for your needs um and uh, at the same time they've they've curated this image of of it like lasting a long time and providing the support yep. and the maintenance and Sure, they definitely had some problems with that in terms of like the battery scandal, where they um they under they underclocked the CPU if your battery got too old or, or stopped running yeah. power. But I I do understand some degree of why they did that. They totally should have informed users. They should have made that way more transparent. Yes. But um, and I suppose in the end of the day, what we're saying is that if so Apple have that brand where they can do that. And because Apple do that, they also legitimize it for mm -hmm. a whole host of Android uh, yeah. manufacturers, whether or not they still have that I, sort of brand to, to do it. I think it's something Android's missing out on a lot. And the I would be much more willing to, to spend an awful lot of money on a phone if I knew it was going to last me five years. Yes. I, I think a lot of people are in that situation. They're fine spending decent money on something if it's going to last absolutely the, the problem is most android phones they get updates for two years three years i've got a, a one plus and i think it's no longer being updated so one, mm -hmm. one plus six it's no more than three years old and it i think it's a security updates but it really should be getting all the functionality updates mm. um they come with a normal android phone even now uh, yeah and there's yeah, there's no reason for the the world to be in that situation. Uh, we should be able to support older hardware for much longer, and I I really hope that that trend at the very least continues. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at tech underscore point underscore zero. We hope you join us again for the next episode. Bye. <laughs>